0: Hello! Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers, now departing present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey,
3: everyone, and welcome to episode 42 of Ancient Office Hours. This week, I had a lovely chat with Dr. Verity Platt, a professor of classics and history of art at Cornell University. Dr. Platt is co-curator of the Cornell Cast Collection and is the author of several books and articles on classical art, religion, and historiography. We spoke at length about a number of topics, including how she got to grow up in North England close to Hadrian's Wall, her struggles getting into academia, her interest in visual art and ekphrasis, and about how professors have to play life advisor, therapist, and parent for students. I hope you enjoy this episode and if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. You can also subscribe to our Patreon as this will allow us to reach more people and make more ancient world content. Enjoy! So thank you for joining me and I want to just start us off right away with how did you get into classics? Were you always interested in the ancient world or was it like a very slow process of self discovery
4: i think i have lots of different answers to that i've always loved ancient things and there were two trajectories really for me while i was at school one is that i loved statues i did a project on easter island when i was 12 in i think in religious studies and that led me towards archaeology and anthropology and then i loved latin and became more and more enamored of Latin literature. I was lucky enough to go to a Latin summer school when I was 15 and realized, wow, these are my people. I read Catullus for the first time and I met someone who's still one of my best friends and the combination of the two made me decide I wanted to study classics, but in a program that would be quite interdisciplinary and let me study art history and archaeology as well. So I've always fallen between the two stools, as it were, of classical literature and ancient art. And I ended up studying Greek sculpture rather than Pacific Island sculpture. But those are the two ways that I came to classics. The other story I have, though, is that when I was three, my parents took me to the Roman baths in Bath in the south of England. And I have this very strong memory that I was kneeling down by the main pool there, which is very warm. And you see the steam coming off the water. And my father said to me, put your hand in the water. It's warm. And I put my hand in and I saw this man swimming towards me through the pool and he smiled at me. And later on, I mentioned it to my parents and they said, you didn't see anybody in the pool. Nobody's allowed to swim in that pool. So, you know, I was three. I probably made the whole thing up for myself, but I have this kind of IT on that, I came to classics because I saw a
3: Roman ghost when I was a child. <laughs> Ooh, so a little That's paranormal. My story. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I don't meet many people who have some sort of a paranormal story. And usually if it is paranormal, um, it's usually not having to do with anything classical. So I, I'm very much <laughs> enjoying this. Movie. Later
4: on, when I read more classical literature, I realized there is this topos of the epiphanic initiation into becoming a a Greek or Roman poet that one one has a vision of a god. So maybe this was my equivalent, although it was a much more humble kind of Romano-British experience.
3: Yeah, let's go with that. I like that a lot better. It makes a lot more sense. But just to rewind the tape a little bit, so where did you actually grow up? I come from the
4: northwest of England, from a county called Cumbria, And I grew up very close to the Scottish border, actually not far away from Hadrian's Wall.
3: Because I did want to ask, I can tell from your accent that you come from the UK, but I'm still bad at placing where accents are. And when I was a junior in college, I studied abroad at the University of Edinburgh for a semester. Uh, And of course, one of the places you go are Hadrian's wall and then the Antonine wall. So I wanted to know whether mm-hmm. you were influenced by sort of growing up in a place where you do have these great Roman ruins, or, I mean, it's not that everyone who goes there just falls madly in love with ancient Romans, but you know, <laughs> did you go, was it like a popular uh, field trip spot or did you just go on your own?
4: I spent a lot of time playing around ruins and visiting other historic sites as a child, And my mother, as a, or later on in her life, became a historian. So I was very lucky to be encouraged in that by my parents. And then I actually went to high school in the city of York. And in our first year there, we had a course called Ibaracum, which is the Roman name for York. And I spent a lot of time visiting sites, not just. Roman Viking medieval York has an incredible history and when I was doing my A-level so in the final year of high school I volunteered at the archaeological resource center where I actually had to demonstrate Viking weaving and spinning it was that wasn't Roman specifically but I, I did spend a lot of time with ancient material culture as a child and I, I have never really specialized in Roman Britain. It was something that was just around me rather than something that I decided I wanted to study specifically.
3: Well, I would say that you were very lucky because, man, would I have loved to grow up around a lot of old Roman ruins.
4: Speaking of ghosts, I later found out, though, that my school, they did an excavation in the garden of the house where I lived. It was an English boarding school. And they found a whole load of Roman burials there of beheaded um probably soldiers of some kind (laughs) so we had all these ghost stories at my school but little did we know that we were literally living on top of a a graveyard that had some really brutal probably military political history involved
3: wow okay well that is super cool i mean of course we had ghost stories as well, but, you know, living in the growing up in the U.S., you don't really have anything super ancient under you, so you're just kind of like, yeah, yeah, okay. So we would make up our own ghost stories, but I think yours is cooler. <laughs> so you kind of had this developed love of ancient things, and I totally understand the statues thing. I really loved all of my art history courses. I have still, to this day, I'm a big nerd about Greek art and architecture, so living in Athens right now i'm just like oh this is the best thing ever yeah, cuz i'm around right. all of my loves but did you once you knew you liked it and then when you knew it was an option to study it in school did you encounter any kind of resistance from your parents or teachers or or people in your orbit who might have said oh well why don't you get a real job i mean yeah this stuff is cool to Look at, but you know, how can you make a real career out of that? Or is it a little more supportive in the UK?
4: <laughs> I think it very much depends on the kind of family you grow up in. And I was very lucky to have parents who encouraged me to study what I loved. My mother said she wanted me to have an education as good as Elizabeth I's, because Queen Elizabeth I had learned Latin. She wanted me to be able to learn Latin too. <laughs> And uh, obviously, I do not have the uh, power and influence and probably not the intelligence of Elizabeth at I, first, but I, I definitely was lucky to have, as I said, my mother later in her life became a professional historian herself. So it was really part of, of what we valued at home. And um, I have a brother and sister, and our parents always did encourage us to study what we love. So we were very privileged in that sense and I was also extremely lucky that I went to university at a time when it was free in the UK and I was able to my parents were not you know able I had to support myself after my undergraduate years and I was lucky that at that point funding was more available through the British government so I had a a scholarship from the Arts and Humanities Research Board in the UK to take them to do a master's and then I was lucky enough to get funding to do my PhD. What I never did was take time out because I I was dependent on grants to to keep going. And sometimes I look back and wish I'd spent a year studying abroad and you know while I was young learned a foreign language other than unspoken ancient, well generally unspoken ancient languages. But I, I was very lucky that there was a career path for me and that I You know, I finished my PhD in the early 2000s at a time when there was still enough jobs available to make it seem worthwhile as a career option.
3: Yeah, I I would say that is very fortuitous because I think a lot of people today especially would would love to have free education like that. I mean, okay, maybe going grant to grant isn't like the most sustainable or wonderful feeling, but luckily for you it worked out and it was there and and you had it and you were able to pursue the career that you wanted. And so because it was there, it was free and this was the path you were taking, did you sort of develop develop like a tunnel vision and just because you knew okay, I'm going grant to grant, I have to keep working for the next source of income? was there any doubt almost like from yourself? I mean, you had a very uh, encouraging environment where you grew up, which is great. But did you yourself think at any time, you know, man, I'm I'm really tired of of having to go grant to grant. I kind of wish that I was doing something that wasn't so stressful or so hard. Or did you just, no, no, I'm good.
4: Well, Throughout my graduate study, I also worked part-time doing various different jobs. I mean, I've done every job
3: you can think of
4: on the part-time front from working in McDonald's and Starbucks to stores and tourist information centers. So, you know, I felt like I had a, a foot in the real world, as it were. But I professionally, I was always very focused on academia and I am hopelessly institutionalised as a result because I have gone from course to course to job to job and I've been very lucky to be able to do that. I I think for me as a graduate student, there were definitely times of doubt when I I felt so cloistered away from the world and that I wanted to be more in touch with the world beyond the ivory tower, as it were. And I was in Oxford, which is very much the ivory tower I never seriously considered alternative career paths. I remember when I was at high school, we went to a careers day at our local university and they had stands for all the different professions you might explore. And they only had one very little table for universities. And I knew I wanted to go to university and stay there as long as possible. So um, the the only stand I ended up going to talk to was the British Rail stand and they were saying we really need more women train drivers come come and join us (laughs) um but I I guess I was very single-minded I knew I wanted to be a scholar from quite early on in in my teenage years.
3: I think that's awesome because too many young people these days are very undecided I mean obviously there's more pressure these days with either parents pressuring them to come on, go to law school, be a doctor, do something that's going to really, you know, make sure that you're taken care of so we don't have to be your your backup plan. And so there's a lot of practical considerations nowadays that maybe wouldn't have been so big back then.
4: And and when you're paying huge fees to attend college, it's understandable that there has to be a more strategic focus on what's going to follow professionally and you know, I have so many students here at Cornell where I teach who might be interested in pursuing humanities majors and but are so worried about what the implications will be for their careers. And you know, I try to tell them there's actually good evidence that doing a humanities major for you know actually doesn't limit you in terms of potential career choices and further down the line can actually prove to have been more useful because it teaches you transferable skills, but it feels like a huge risk. And I understand why students and their and their families feel the, the pressure to be thinking more vocationally.
3: And I think it's a real shame. I mean, a lot of it also has to do with also major university funding sometimes and, and I mean there are just a bunch of external factors that may or may not contribute to you know why does someone feel comfortable majoring in classics versus oh you know I really no that's not what I'm gonna do I'll take some classes maybe it'll be fun but you know not like a serious course of study in it which oh
4: well, do shame. you know that um classic students I'm not sure if this stat still holds, but it did a few years ago, score the highest on the LSAT exams because studying for a classics degree gives you the right kind of skills to transfer to the kinds of questions that you're finding will make you, you know, good for a career in law. So there are some vocational advantages potentially. <laughs>
3: You know, I didn't realize, I mean, I knew that classic students always tended to do very well on standardized tests, but I did not realize that they scored the highest, but that is definitely something that I will be going and telling people when they say, why should I take any classes in in classics and not just pile on things that sort of seem maybe in the moment more relevant to either their chosen career path or just, I don't get when people say, oh, I think that blah, blah, blah is more interesting, quote unquote, than classics, because to me, I'm just like, interesting than (laughs) classics. Like there is nothing, you know, more, more interesting, but I suppose that is um, maybe I'm in the minority of people. And then, so we're going to just fast forward through your interests and then go to when you're choosing a specialty. So once you have, you know, made the choice, to, I'm really going to pursue this path. What kind of was the process that led you to figuring out what you actually wanted to study at the graduate level and specialize in as a professional? I mean, you mentioned you had a lot of interests within classics and from majoring in classics. I know there's, you know, 10 different paths you could take. You know, you could study the literature, the art history or the culture, or the language. I mean, it's it's kind of like putting a, a kid in a, in a candy shop and just saying, OK, you can only choose one candy. So, you know, did you find that process hard or no, was it not actually that tough for you? In some ways it was very easy and in other ways complicated.
4: So I have always loved reading poetry and I knew during my undergraduate years that I especially wanted to read Hellenistic poetry and, and Latin as well but I had a special interest in the Hellenistic period and in the Greek novel. So I knew I was interested in post-classical Greek literature. And I I finally was able to study art history properly in the second year of my undergraduate degree when I took a course in Greek sculpture. And that to me was just a revelation. I finally am doing the thing I want to spend my life doing. And that summer I went to excavate in Pompeii with a, project called the Anglo-American Project in Pompeii that a lot of my peers went, went through at the time in the 90s, and that made me realize I probably didn't want to be an archaeologist because I didn't get too excited by drawing walls, but while I was there we were lucky enough to be taken around Various houses in Pompeii and in other sites in Campania. And I went to the villa at Atlantis and I saw the wall paintings there for the first time. And this was before I had studied any Roman art. So I had no idea what I was going to be encountering really. And when I looked at those, I I just felt I want to spend the rest of my life figuring out why these look like they do. (laughs) And um, so as I went through my undergraduate degree, I discovered. The rhetorical device of ekphrasis, which is commonly referred to as the description of works of art in literary texts, and that really excited me. And I realised, oh, there is this, there is this kind of subfield that is about text-image relationships, about the art and text. So I knew I wanted to go in the direction of the visual, and I wanted more experience in art history. And I decided that what I would do would be to do a masters in art history. And I applied to the Courtauld Institute in London, which is the equivalent in the UK of the Institute of Fine Arts here, in, that's part of NYU in New York. And so I spent a year there. And during that time, I realized what I wanted to do for my PhD, and I wanted to continue this art text interdisciplinary approach. So it made most sense to go back into a classics program to do that. But then it got complicated because I wanted to work with a particular professor back in Oxford called Yash Elsner, but to work with him, for various complicated reasons, I needed to go through the languages and literature subfield. So through my career, I have moved between departments of classics and art history, and every institution and every country has its own particular configuration in disciplinary terms. So, you know, in my job now, I'm cross-appointed between classics and history of art. I'm fully appointed in both And in my previous job, I was in a department of art history. And the one before that, I was in a department of classics. I think of it as often I fall between two stools or attempt to rise between two stools. I'm always trying to put the two into dialogue.
3: Yeah, I've noticed because it's such an interesting field and because appointments are made in such distinctive ways at different institutions, I find that a lot of professors that I've actually spoken to feel that they bounce around because they they like to do very interdisciplinary things and i mean the nature of the subject itself is very interdisciplinary so in your own words or based off of just sort of how you feel not what a department will place you in what you've chosen is incredibly amazing because you found that sweet spot where it's like yes you get to do art but also within literature so it's kind of in both but in your own words like do you consider yourself more art historian or classicist
4: Oh, <laughs> um, you have uh, put your finger on one of my greatest anxieties. What I worry about is that I'm, I'm neither because I'm never fully inhabiting either camp. And sometimes it's very useful to be able to run away from one to the other when, when you get frustrated or feel demoralized. I honestly don't feel I could, I could say that I was fully one or the other. In my finals in Oxford, I took eight papers, and five of them were in literature, two were in art history, and one was in philosophy. And if you were to look at the book I'm writing now and map out the kinds of sources I'm using and what I'm writing about, it would probably fit quite neatly into that division of five, two, one. But my next project is going to be very object-focused. I really enjoy the ability to Move between the two, and as you said, classics really is the original interdisciplinary subject in a way, and and it feels to me artificial to put up walls between those different fields and of realms of human activity. If we're trying to understand the classical world, then we need to be interdisciplinary.
3: Well, I think that you've just made a great argument, both for yourself and for future students, that. Maybe we shouldn't focus so much on putting people into boxes and then sub boxes within a subject that sort of is at war with itself in terms of trying to be interdisciplinary when people fundamentally don't like that. I think every
4: classicist, maybe except for people who do textual criticism, has a secret fear that they might not be a real classicist. What is it? what does it mean to be a real classicist There are so many there is many different ways of being a classicist as there are classicists expanding which is a wonderful thing about what's happening in our field at the moment that that we're actually at this critical moment where we have a chance to you know reinvent and rewrite and rethink so much of what it is that we do
3: You've hit right on another money topic, which I often spend hours contemplating. Sorry, unfortunately, you've opened the door now. The gates are open. But, you know, what does it mean to be a classicist these days? I mean, the subject itself is going through this kind of reckoning, I think, that we've all been seeing because there's such a hyper focus on, well, the ancient Mediterranean, just Greece and, and Rome. And nothing kind of outside of that. Is that like sustainable? Like, do we need to expand? Because I think something that I've noticed in talking to friends and then through the podcast, just experts within their fields, is that we don't do a really good job of relating events and things that happen in history into the wider context of what's happening outside of that specific region. So what I mean by that is I have a lot of friends who I went through school with who want to concentrate on a specific period, whether that's 5th century, 4th century, Archaic Greece. But then if I give them, you know, oh, so what? what, what do you know what the Egyptians were doing? Do you know what the Mesopotamians were doing? Do you know what anyone was doing outside of just Greece and Rome? No, there's a complete disconnect. So I've seen like my Egyptologist friends get very confused when they see classicists talking about things that happen in Egyptian history that might have been going on at the same time or relatively in the same time, but just have no concept of actually time-wise where they go. Things that might seem a little obvious to me and to other people who maybe study a a bit wider period of of history, sort of... the generalists. It seems very straightforward that if I think about, okay, Ptolemaic Egypt, Cleopatra, this is at the very sort of end of pharaonic Egypt and, you know, things are developing a little wider within the Mediterranean. But there was somebody who I was talking to who seemed to think that Alexander the Great is existing at the same time as when the pyramids were built. And... I just kind of sat there and said, wait, 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 can you, can you say that again? And she was like, yeah, yeah. She was like, wasn't Alexander kind of around when the pyramids were being built? And I was like, no, (laughs) if you look at timelines, no. And so that's very obvious to me, but to other people realizing things like that, it's not. So from being within the field and seeing it change and trying to figure out, okay, what does being a classicist mean? You know, how, specific or wide should our knowledge be you know as someone within the system what does that mean like you know if you say you're a classicist does that mean you should know just your area of specialty or should we have some sort of broader knowledge that kind of de-emphasizes just what you're doing and when you're doing it
4: yeah these are really important questions that we are all thinking about hard at the moment. I think there are several ways of approaching the dilemma that you're sketching out. I mean, one is to decenter Athens and Rome within the ancient Mediterranean and understand that if you are looking at you know, Lycia or you know, the Upper Nile or the, the Rhine, then you're also looking at these you know, really rich cultural contexts that don't always need to be understood in terms of some uh, as peripheries. Like, so de- decentering or, or rethinking our assumptions about geographical prominence and how that dictates the kind of assumptions we have about canons and literature and in the arts in, in you know, the way that we read and study history. So, there can be a kind of decentering process, and I'm lucky here at Cornell, I have colleagues who are specialists in Greco Roman Egypt who specifically tackle those very those very questions at multiple periods, You know, when you're, whether you're looking at what we in Classics might call the Bronze Age or the um, Ptolemaic period or you know, Egypt as a Roman Empire, that are dismantling so many of the assumptions that we have. And especially coming at things from the Africana Studies point of view, emphasising the fact that Egypt is part of Africa and that North Africa is a major part of the world that we study Doing what we call classics, and that that needs to be recognized and understood in a much more granular way than we have done traditionally, so there's that approach, but then there is also the approach we might take through what's sometimes called critical reception studies, where we you know start from where we are and kind of work backwards in time and think about how the reception of the ancient world, especially in europe and in North America has constructed a certain idea about the preeminence of Greece and Rome in those very particular periods that, that we all study, and that we need to unpack why we have those assumptions and recognise how problematic they are. And in my own teaching, that's the approach I've tended to take while it's coming through the, the reception studies angle.
3: Yeah, I think that's those are very very valid points. I know, I know. I just asked like probably what could have been like 20 questions because I'm getting <laughs> it, like very complex meta issues. So, but I think yeah, no, that's it's very good that there there is this awareness that we do have to decentralize things and we do have to kind of take a more critical eye at it at, at how we're presenting things and you know, the way we talk about things. So I I think it's definitely progress. And I hope to see further changes, sort of both within the discipline and and even around the discipline, just like peripherally, as well. Um, I think I'd like to see more partnerships between departments, even. Uh, There's no reason why departments of like African Studies shouldn't be able to work together with classics it, it's just not done very often and I'm like well why <laughs> like we we could um people just don't traditionally think of doing that we, we tend to really live in our bubbles
4: yeah and I think that that's the case in some parts of the discipline more than others in archaeology and so material culture I think that there, there has been a lot more recognition of the porousness of boundaries and the importance of cross-cultural comparison as well as thinking about how artificial these silos are in geographical and period and disciplinary terms. Yeah. A lot more to be done for sure. Yeah
3: well I want to take it sort of in a fun direction since we just asked you know probably the most serious complicated and uh, sometimes a little depressing questions we could ask concerning our field but to take it in a little more fun direction. Um, you mentioned that you really enjoy Acrassus. I remember uh, having several classes where they would have these incredibly descriptive uh, pieces of artwork in the literature. And so I want to know do you have a favorite instance of this? Because I have a, a former professor who had a very strong opinion about it. So now I'm just curious.
4: Ooh, I would love to know what your. Professor's strong opinion is, oh my goodness, you've asked me a really great question, but I have so many favorite actresses. I have just been writing about the Hellenistic epigrammatist Posidippus. Have you come across his poems that were rediscovered in the late 90s? So this is a really good example of actually how Greco-Egyptian culture has given us these amazing instances of what you might call cultural syncretism, but a manuscript that was a papyrus book of Posidippus' epigrams was used as packing material in a mummy, and um, and managed to survive. And then is now in Milan. And was when they um, finally were able to read it, they realised that um, it was a very rare example of one poet's collection of epigrams because so many ancient epigrams survive in the context of the Greek anthology but this is one single author and we assume one single author I think there are a few people who who question that and I have been working on the first group of poems in that series which are called the lithica which are his poems on stones and each epigram is on a separate gem and they are gem-like themselves you know these miniature poems that are really beautifully constructed about these beautiful stones that are themselves meticulously carved and engraved and the relationship between the poem and the object it's describing is so tight and so beautifully constructed that they never cease to amaze me and there's there's one which describes a pale blue chalcedony that has a, an image of Pegasus on it. And Pegasus is flying up into the air. And so the blue of the stone is the blue of the sky. And Bellerophon's just fallen off his back and he's taking off. So it's this amazing image of flight. You know, the, the material of the stone matches the iconography on the gem. And it, it, it gives me huge pleasure, that particular example.
3: Okay. Okay. Well, since you were curious, I will say my professor has very strong opinions about Aeneas's shield in um, in the Aeneid. What? what just just strong opinions. I will say she was. Um, we read it because we were doing a an a, a class called the Age of Augustus because Augustus is her boy you know, you get in a conversation with her and she's just like, it comes back somehow to Augustus is wonderful. And I love him so much. And oh my gosh, he's amazing. And all the literature from that. So she loves him. And when she's talking about the Aeneid section, she just goes on and on about, Oh, the shield. It's so beautiful. Let's look at the description. Let's, let's read about it. And then proceeds to talk about how it's, it's her favorite description. It's the most wonderfully written sort of you know, Akphrasis that she's ever seen and um, she knew that I do not like the Aeneid in any way shape or form I am such a such a Hellenist so I was just like no I was like it, it is a rip-off it is a complete rip-off of the Iliad and the Odyssey sorry sorry can't do it no and if we want to talk about cool and, and and Shields Let's talk about the original one in in the Iliad. So I was like, no, 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 no. So so we would fight about that um, playfully, of course. But yes. Oh, appeared.
4: you're a Helenophile purist and uh, like the Agrestus.
3: Yep, I <laughs> am. So she would. So that's why she has very strong opinions because we'd go back and forth. Well, on Who shield is better? One of
4: the interesting differences between the shield of Achilles and the shield of Aeneas is that the way Homer tells the shield of Achilles is in the process of its making. So um it's what the rhetorical treatise writers would have called an ekphrasis tropu it's a description of the way in which something is done whereas when you get to the Aeneid the shield is already been made by the time that Aeneas sees it and you see it through his eyes and of course he doesn't understand anything that's on it at all but it is this it's this completed object and there's something very interesting about that shift from a narrative of making to a more kind of distanced, finished thing that actually can't be understood by the person who's looking at it.
3: See, I think that just goes to my rational brain because I understand processes and I understand things as they're forming and as they're being made sometimes i struggle to see things that are presented in front of me that are already sort of done and complicated and so i i appreciate seeing things as they're coming together so so maybe it's something about that in my own personality which is why i'm the purist and i'm like no 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 let's let's talk about homer what he writes but yeah we would have some some fun debates in in her office hours about that i look back on that time both fondly and with great frustration that i could not convince her no matter how hard I tried that that Homer was uh, the better version you're,
4: you're reminding me of the undergraduate tutorial I had on book four of the Aeneid where there were two of us in the tutorial uh, you know one of my you know fellow classicists who was a boy and, and me and he his essay really took the pro Aeneas line it was all about duty
3: and my essay took really the pro Dido line
4: <laughs> and we really you know
3: duked it out. Those are the best. Well, you've opened the door again. This is so easy. Oh my goodness. You should, you should, um, you should podcast with me all the time because you're just giving me all the openings that I need. I wish everything were were this easy. That would be but I want to bounce on to so you've mentioned this tutorial now, and I've just mentioned that I would have these great debates in my professor's office hours. So I'm gonna just shoot these questions up forward a a little bit because I tend to save them for the end, but Office hours, they are a wonderful thing. My podcast is named Ancient Office Hours for a reason. So (laughs) what type of conversations do you tend to encounter most in office hours? Ooh, I think it really depends on
4: the student. So I have a lot of advisees who are not classics majors. Many of them are freshmen. They've just arrived. They're wondering... What courses to take, what kind of path to track through their degree, what to have privilege in terms of their time commitments. And so we talk a lot about how to fulfill distribution requirements, how to plan for a major, but also leave enough wiggle room, how not to close doors with your choices too early on in your college experience. So that's one set of conversations I have. And then I have students who come to talk to me about. All kinds of things, you know, on the more personal front, how they're navigating, how you know, their own identities in relation to the college experience, and yeah, you know, we're living in such stressful times. Things are changing very rapidly as well, so I, I think there's a lot of anxiety amongst all of us, but especially young people. How do I fit into the world? How do I fit into this world that is changing so rapidly? Um, and then. I have conversations with majors in classics and history of art. A lot of the time, it will be around um, what they might want to write their honours thesis on, what they want to, if they want to study abroad, and where they might like to go. And um, also, if they want to go to grad school, you know, what programs should they be applying for? What kind of questions should they be asking? How can they get their dossiers together?
3: Would it be almost correct to say that in your role as a as a professor, you kind of get to act like half-life counselor, half-career therapist, sort of, where you have to kind of mesh together what are, what are people feeling, what are their interests, and then basically have to say, this is, I think, the advice that you might find most helpful?
4: Yes. And then there are people who just want to come and feel like they're somewhere safe where they can just, you know, be with a, perhaps quite um, a mom figure for <laughs> half an hour or so. <laughs> um, um, yeah, so it, it's a combination of all those things. And sometimes it will be a student who said, oh, you know, I've come across this really interesting thing in, in my essay. Can I talk to you more about this? Can I ask you more about
3: you know, this particular artist or poet? So now I need to ask, did you yourself as a student attend office hours? Uh,
4: No. So I was a student at Oxford, and I was lucky in that Oxford has a college system. So each college is its own small community, and there's a lot of support within that community. But my tutors were quite remote figures, really, who I was very lucky that the Oxbridge tutorial system meant that I didn't have big classes. I mean, there were lectures, but my main experience of being taught was going to a tutorial where I would have either submitted an essay in advance or I would read out my essay to the professor in the tutorial and we would discuss the ideas but that was always very you know kind of hermetically sealed off from everything else so I I didn't really have much contact with my professors beyond tutorials and language classes or lectures until I was a grad student
3: Okay, I might attribute some of that to also just the difference in in, in system in the UK yeah, and the US.
4: I think, I think so. And actually, I think it's probably different in the UK now as well. So this was in you know the late nineties. I think there's a lot more recognition now that students need more support.
3: Yeah, I mean, but even when I was even when I studied in Scotland, I was there fall of twenty fifteen and and it was still very much you know we we had the big lectures but no most of my proper instruction was was in in smaller tutorials where there were maybe 20 30 at the most people in there and then you got sort of that more one-on-one attention and and the time to really ask questions and not just sort of sit and have to take notes during the lecture where you mm-hmm. you had to move on Um, So, yeah, I would say, you know, a lot of that probably is just systemic differences. But now teaching and being in the U.S. and seeing our system of, of doing things and how it differs, if I were to ask you to sort of make a case for why students should attend office hours, you know, what would you say? So if I came to you and was a student who was very skeptical, because I, I, I've i met a lot of students and I have a lot of friends of mine who never went to office hours. And when I would ask them, you know, why not? They would just say, oh, you know, I don't want to bother them with things or they, you know, oh, I'm a little afraid of talking to my professor. They just seem, you know, like they probably wouldn't have anything beyond just giving me extra credit, like help. How, you know, like I wouldn't talk, they wouldn't talk to them unless they needed help or to catch up on a course. So, as a professor, though, why should students come to office hours and talk to you?
4: Well, there is one very important strategic reason why it's a good idea to develop a personal relationship with your advisor or, or professor, which is that when you get to the end of your program and you are, or, or earlier on as well, if you are applying for jobs, you're applying for grad school or summer internships or study abroad you need people who will write letters for you who know you and so that there's one very kind of sensible logistical reason why it's good to cultivate those relationships but putting that aside i am always really pleased when a student comes to talk to me because it, it gives me a chance to get to know them better and to identify where they might benefit from extra support and advice or you know extra resources or you know to steer them in in certain directions if they're feeling confused or excited by something and that is an important part of the pedagogical process and if you have a professor who has open hours and who has office hours and is open to talking really seize on that opportunity because you, know, you can learn more that will help enrich your experience of the course you might be taking with them. You can get direction in how to expand your reading and and studying into you know, related areas. Your professor might know exactly. What might be, um, you know, pushing your buttons based on things that you talk about in those office hours that could help you discover something really fascinating that could end up being what you study for your your honours thesis if you decide to take one or something like that. So in terms of, you know, intellectual experimenting and broadening horizons, it can be very helpful from that point of view. And the other thing is never be scared to ask for help because your know, chances are if there's something in the course that is confusing you that isn't clear that you feel like you need some an extra steer with then other people are also experiencing that as well and it's important that your professor knows in order to help you and also may well actually you know, encourage them to revise their approach in some way or add in further materials into the course you know it will it will help your fellow students as well
3: Well, those are all great reasons that I absolutely agree with. I was the poster child for attending office hours. I I will say I made really great friends with several of my professors at the University of Missouri. And I was richly rewarded because my favorite professor had a chocolate drawer, which if you Oh, very good. If you went, you could go in and even if she were she was busy talking with other people, you could go in, you could open the drawer, just say, hi, I'm here to just get some chocolate, grab I a handful do this. and okay. exit. <laughs> I and
4: have she was, which are useful, but I think I need a chocolate drawer as well.
3: I think a chocolate drawer is always a winner because once you get that reputation as, oh, this person has the office where you just can go get chocolate no matter what. even And, and she was like, even if you're not a student of mine, if you just, want to get to know a professor in the department she was like here just have some chocolates so she's very very open and made a great job of selling herself so the joke was I I basically lived in her office it wasn't just office hours it was my office like home away from home so yeah. nothing
4: more wonderful speaking from the faculty point of view than having students who really love this subject and who want to come and talk about ideas and just be part of a community of learning together it's so enriching and it really situate relationships like that remind me of why it is I do what I do because they're just so encouraging and um, energizing for, for everybody
3: yeah, I mean it's a great two-way relationship. I think I provided enough entertainment for her over the four years, five years I was in school, but definitely I I feel like I soaked up so much of just her her general knowledge, her wisdom. And anytime I wanted to discuss anything, even if it was stupid, I could go and I would never feel dumb just talking about something. You know, that's how we discovered that we both had a, a weakness for the um as stupid as they are. Disney Hercules action figures. She had them in her office, so she had the like big oh, one-eyed, great. like Cyclops Titan, and she had it on top of a shelf. And I went in and I just said, "I love your Cyclops Titan from the movie. I know it's stupid." And and then she, when she retired about a year after I graduated, she called me up and said, "I have to get everything out of my office. Would you like my Cyclops figure?" Because I oh, really love wow. it. That's a very special gift. <laughs> so I have it. <laughs>
4: I have the, the two of the Playmobil Greek God figures in my office. When I went to the Acropolis Museum shop, it took me about an hour to decide which ones to get. I need to build up my collection.
3: Oh no, don't tell me that because now I need to. I feel like I need to go back to the museum and start picking out figures that I want to collect. Oh dear, that's very, very dangerous. But again, you've done me the great favor of bringing in that pop culture element that I was going to jump us to. So now we've talked about the cute little figurines and the Playmobil figures, and they have a billion other figures that, you know, bring sort of ancient art or stories or characters to life. And so, Usually I use this section to talk about just generally sort of either the language aspect or the portrayal just generally of the ancient world on film or in media. But as an art expert, is there a specific movie or TV show or something that you've seen that really brings ancient art to life in like an outstanding or maybe not so outstanding way that you can think of? hmm
4: well disney's hercules i actually cited in my book on epiphany and on greek art and religion because it has that amazing scene where the statue of Olympian Zeus in the temple comes to life and speaks to hercules um it's a, a brilliant example of an epiphanic encounter with an ancient cult statue but actually i have a more recent example which is bridgerton
3: i Confess, I've only watched a little bit of it, like three episodes, so I'm not all caught up, but please go ahead.
4: Oh, you haven't got to the the racy episode. (laughs) No, well, one thing that is interesting to do in watching Bridgerton is to look out for parts or copies of classical sculpture, because you will see in a few scenes that um, I think the dying gall appears in one of them, uh, and a few other examples. And that's partly because it so much of it was filmed in English country houses and, you know, various other 18th and 19th century locations in England. And so you have this backdrop, which is that of, you know, the English country house with all of its neoclassical style, but then you have this, you know, multiracial, you know, rethinking of what that world could have been like in Bridgerton itself. So there are some quite, you know, stark contrasts there that
3: make you kind of, rethink
4: the history of that particular visual tradition in fun ways
3: yeah well you know I definitely uh, seeing ancient art put in media like Bridgerton, is definitely a, a way of studying classical reception by seeing how people, you know, choose to film these and talk about them and, and show them. So I'm sure you've seen a bunch of, you know, you could probably Google on the Internet any sort of famous classical statue. And then there are some people somewhere trying to recreate it and copy it and do the pose. So Dying Gaul is a great example because I myself have been guilty of recreating the Dying Gaul pose in random spots in the world, either making a direct reference or sort of direct reference. You know, is is that just kind of poking fun and and having a good laugh about that? Do you consider copying statues poses a form of reception?
4: Oh, yes. Definitely. I mean, people have been doing that for hundreds of years. You know, since um, Emma Hamilton did it with her famous Attitudes in the 18th century, which were, you know, the kind of early performance art where she would pose in the positions of different Greek statues and people would, you know, help people show how, you know, knowledgeable they were by identifying which particular statue she was imitating. So I, there's a venerable tradition as far as that's concerned, and it's all part of the experience of encountering these 3D objects in real space and thinking about how they relate to real bodies. I mean, that's one of the really important things that statues do. They demand our interaction and a kind of embodied relationship with them. So I absolutely consider that a form of dynamic reception history.
3: Okay, okay, because I remember I had uh, my favorite professor... At, at Mizzou for in the art sort of history sphere. She taught me, I did like Hellenistic art with her and then I think I did archaic art or something. She would get into the differences in styles of statues and I just remember she was my favorite because... I remember the day she taught us about contrapposto. And for those listening, it's a very specific pose where you're supposed to sort of be relaxed and all the weight is on one foot. While she was teaching us about it and showing us pictures on her slideshow, she would unconsciously place her own body into a contrapposto. (laughs) And no one seemed to recognize this or notice this except for like my friend and, and maybe one other person and me. And then we brought it up to her once and said, did you realize that when you're talking about contraposto, you would like settle your own body sort of into a re- very relaxed contraposto?" And she went, me? No, really? I do that? And we go, yeah.
4: <laughs> did, did you know that? When I, when I teach contraposto, I make my students stand up and do it themselves.
3: Oh, OK. So, so do you have your students try a severe style? Because I'm, I'm really curious about this now.
4: <laughs> well, we think about the difference between the stance of a kuros that's, you know, very, uh, you know, four square, and and then the, what shifts of the contrapposto, and to feel the shift of weight in the body with one shoulder lower than the other, one hip higher than the other, you know, to to feel it in your own body is an important way of recognizing what it is that it does, but also how there is a certain kind of artifice to it as well. So I also make them stand in the pose of the Aphrodite of Knidos so that they can think about where their arms are positioned and the different messages that might give.
3: Now I have to ask, do you ask students to emulate Zeus or Poseidon of Artemisian?
4: Oh, that's a good one. I think in social distancing times that might be possible, but otherwise not. You need a lot of space for that one.
3: I just wanna know sometimes because that just it popped into my head and I was like, oh, I'd love to see just a room full of students trying to emulate that because as we know I did
4: have a student who was a javelin player for Cornell. I should I should have asked him to demonstrate for us. The
3: uh the upper half is so easy to recreate. That's not that hard. It's it's the the unique placement of the feet that I'm always like, Can can you do that? Can can you can, can anyone stand comfortably like that? Or is that just a, an impossible feat only seen in sculpture? It is one of my favorite statues, I will. Yeah,
4: there's a really interesting tension, I think, between what has the appearance of a natural stance and what is actually kind of natural to the human body and how it moves in space. And sculpture is continually kind of negotiating and renegotiating that relationship.
3: Definitely. And do you have a favorite statue?
4: Yes, I do. So when I arrived at Cornell, we have a cast collection here that was once beautifully displayed in a museum. And like so many other cast collections, has been dispersed, partly destroyed, partly put into storage. A little bit of it's on display. And one of my colleagues here had sitting on the top of the filing cabinet in his office A cast of the Belvedere Torso, which the original is in the Vatican Museums in Rome, and it is this crouching male figure. It has no head; it's cut off at the knees, so it it is mainly just you know the torso and the and the hips. And it's been famous since the Renaissance for being this really incredibly strong body that is nevertheless fragmented and eroded. And Michelangelo famously refused to restore it because he, he thought that the fragment was so magnificent on its own that he would only do damage to it. So it has this really interesting history in the history of art. And it is also an incredibly charismatic piece of sculpture. There it was on top of the filing cabinet. So I said, do you want do you want to get rid of that? Can I have it in my office? So it's been in my office ever since and I actually moved offices last year and the torso came with me. And I ended up writing a whole article about the Belvedere torso because it was literally sitting right there in front of me. So I have become very, very fond of this particular piece.
3: Okay, okay. I love I love that you asked if you could have it and well Here we are. Yes, please take it off my hands. (laughs) Oh, I love it so much. So I guess the last sort of uh, pop culture reference that I will make slash ask about is, have you seen the uh, Assassin's Creed video game set in ancient Greece? Oh,
4: yes. Yes. My husband is a very avid gamer. I am not. So I haven't played it, but I have watched him playing it. And I actually used the opening video or the promotional video that gives you that amazing kind of bird's eye view of Athens. I've used it in several of my courses because the topography of it is so precise. The statues in it are nuts, completely wrong, but the topography is, is very useful.
3: Uh, yeah, I was going to say, because if you were aware of it, I was going to say, you know, do you feel that for the most part they did a pretty good job or, you know, like, is this a blueprint we we could follow for future things that we might be able to use across fields? So not just for gaming, because I know there's some popular movements to involve more sort of digital recreations of of things that, yes, you could use for gaming, but you could do so much more with them.
4: Oh, yeah, no, I think there is huge potential for VR. And, you know, there are people who are doing really interesting things with VR to help in the teaching of classical archaeology, for sure. And um, reconstructions can really help a lot in understanding the spatial configuration of things. And that's where that Assassin's Creed video is so helpful. It would be interesting to find out what their thinking was behind the choices that they made, because... They they seem to me incredibly precise when it came to thinking about where buildings were located in relation to the general map of Athens. That seemed to be very, very carefully done. And the choices about sculpture seem to be according to completely different criteria. And I'd love to know what those criteria were. And they probably relate to the rest of the game in important ways that I don't understand. But I wouldn't want to teach Greek sculpture based on that. But there is, I mean, in terms of digital resources, I mean, the, you know, the development of 3D scanning and printing is direct line with the creation of plastic casts of ancient sculpture, but it opens up all kinds of amazing possibilities. And a lot of contemporary artists are doing incredibly inventive, interesting things with 3D printing and scanning using classical statuary in different ways.
3: Well, I guess I would say that, yes, I would hope that there are more initiatives to sort of mix academia and the resources of gaming companies like Ubisoft, which made Assassin's Creed. But I will also say, I hope that somebody out there makes a game and I would terribly love to see you consult for the artwork on it because i'd, I'd <laughs> like to i'd like to see something rendered but like historically accurately and and just have it be widely out there so people could really learn about it and and more than just see a, a snippet of it and whether it's right or, or, or not you know i'd like mm-hmm. to see something pretty accurate so if studios come a calling i hope that you would say yes to consulting on it
4: well my husband would be very glad if i did given that he is so obsessed with gaming. <laughs> (laughs)
3: Oh, okay. Well, now this this is the pitch to any any studio executives who who want to make something with ancient art. I have I have done your homework for you, and I have found you your your expert in 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 art history. So you heard it here first. So at the end of uh, each podcast, I ask each guest if they will read Shelley's version of *Ozymandias*. And so if you could read it and then don't worry, this does not have to be the most erudite thing you've ever said about poetry in your life. But just give us a little snippet of, you know, what do you think this poem is trying to tell us and why do we think it, why why is it important today?
1: Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it.
2: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
4: Okay, here we go. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Well, (laughs) what do I think about what this poem means? As somebody who works on ancient sculpture, I think it is one of the most powerful pieces that has been written about the nature of monumentality and the idea that monuments are inseparable from power and all of the inequities that you know power can embody and that monuments assert a permanence which they will never actually fulfill and there is the idea of despair in that that one can put so much effort into the creation of something that is never going to last forever but also a kind of reassurance that All empires fall, as it were. So, teaching the history of ancient sculpture, I find myself coming back to this poem a lot because, you know, at the moment we are dealing so much with this question of monumentality and what it means and whether it is justifiable. Especially here in in the U.S., monuments have become vehicles of oppression in such clear ways and and are now being torn down and removed. You know, this poem is still a helpful way of thinking through these problems that are enduring problems related to classical reception as well as you know, the problematic relationship between classics and white supremacy and you know, the things we were talking about earlier when it comes to the ways in which we need to rethink our discipline.
3: I couldn't have put it better myself. I mean, yeah, that that's basically the heart of why I love reading it and that it's my my favorite poem of all time, uh, I tend to think of it, yeah, as a, as a very political statement by Shelley, just on the ephemeral nature of political power and human hubris. And so since we seem to be thinking along the same lines, the final question I love asking guests is, if we think about our current society, is there anything... That's like a modern day Ozymandias that we think is so great, that is permanent, monumentally, just, you know, a statement of look how great we are. But realistically, in I'd like to be optimistic and say a thousand years, but let's be real, climate change could kill us. So let's be a little um, less generous and say even 200 years in the future. What's something that we'll, we'll just kind of look back on and be like, okay. was this actually great or were we just kind of kidding ourselves like like this was stupid?
4: Well, I mean, there's a statue of Robert E. Lee, which was finally taken down just this summer. But I also I think about the film, The Planet of the Apes and its famous final scene where they're walking along the beach and they see the, the remains of the Statue of Liberty, you know, in sand up to her neck. And realize that they're actually, you know, in a future earth. And um I mean, one can't help think about climate change through that lens. And so much of our built environment at the moment is a major risk as um know sea levels rise. And uh, you know, within the next hundred years we're going to see a hell of a lot of Ozzy situations.
3: Yeah, and that's so unfortunate to think about. Like it's actually so depressing to think about, but it's very true. So I could not put it better. You hit the nail right on the head. That's pretty much depressingly. Uh, I feel so bad asking people to end on such a depressing note. Sometimes I feel like I should uh, switch things up, but that'll be a problem for a later time. But in in the meantime, I will leave people with that wonderful analysis and I want to thank you again so, so much for, for taking the time to join me on the podcast. I mean, it's been a real pleasure to to be able to sit and chat and it's it always feels great to be able to, to talk about ancient architecture and sculpture just with another huge fan of it because I, I know too many philologists who don't want
0: to talk about the wonderful sculpture.
4: Oh, well, this has been a real pleasure. Thank
0: you. Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings.